was trying to decide which shoes to wear this morning, and so Summer helped me out a little bit. She chose the least comfortable of the two <laughs> to, to help me remember to stay on time. So <laughs> I had told her that my notes were a little longer than usual this morning, so she's helping me out there. Uh, <laughs> Please open your Bibles with me to the first book, Genesis, and the first chapter. We'll actually start this morning in verse 3. We're going to back up and take a run and start at it. Last week we looked for a great deal of time at the relationship between verse 1 and 2, how they interact with each other. Verse 2 describes the condition after the initial creation of verse 1. And we also talked about the days of creation being literal 24-hour days as we would think of them. Not long ages, and we'll briefly mention that this morning as well. We're going to continue on through the days of creation. We'll get through three or four days this morning. And what we're going to see is God setting the stage. And that's, that's basically what he's doing here. He's preparing for the crowning achievement of his creation, which is mankind. And so everything that we see here is for the good of man. And a lot of people ask, like, how do you know that man is special? Why is man not just another animal? And... To a Christian, that's a very easy answer to give. It's because God became a man to redeem mankind. That's above all else how we know that man is not just another animal. And we'll talk about that more next week as well. Now, Genesis 1 verse 3, we're going to read through the first four days of the creation week. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, And God saw that it was good. Verse 11, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields its seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And that takes us through verse 19. Let's move back up to verse 3, and we'll look at this a little bit closer. Then God said, let there be light, 
And guess what? There was light. The word of God brought forth this light. And the word of God still shines light into our lives. There's a deeper theological truth here than just the physical reality that it's talking about. Scientifically, light is still one of the biggest mysteries of modern science. We don't really know what light is. We do know that it exists within the electromagnetic spectrum, and visible light only represents a relatively small part of light in general. It's also unique because light behaves as both a particle and a wave, which, to my knowledge, is unique. It's a unique characteristic to light. It's interesting that both light and sound travel in waves because God, using sound, his word, spoke light into existence, a wave into another form of wave. Now, I don't want to overstate the importance of this because there are some vital differences between sound waves and light waves. Um, For one, light doesn't need a medium to travel through where sound does. So in a vacuum of space, you can't transmit sound because there's nothing for that sound to transmit through. Light is different. The electromagnetic fields are always permeating even in a vacuum. And so it is possible to transmit light through a vacuum or through outer space. So there are some differences there, but it is interesting that a wave produced another wave. And I don't know what we make of that. And God saw the light, that it was good. And he divided the light from the darkness. Now immediately, here's a lesson for us. God divided the light from the darkness. And God still does that, doesn't he? Throughout scripture, we've seen God divide light and darkness. And not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. He divided clean from unclean in the law. In Leviticus 10, verses 9 and 10, you don't have to turn there, God spoke to Aaron Aaron concerning the conduct of his priests. He said, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish, that's that same word that Genesis uses for divide, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. There's a division here. Leviticus 20, 25. You therefore distinguish, there's that word divide, between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. And then in verse 26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated, there's that word again, separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So one of the reasons that God separated animals into clean and unclean was to make his people holy, to make them distinct or divided from the rest of the heathens. What is holiness anyways? It's being set apart. It's being distinct. Being divided from the world to God. And this is important. It's not just a separation from the world. It's a separation to God. Yes, God separates light from darkness. He separated the Levites In Numbers 8.14, Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. There's a divide there. God told Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from Korah's rebellious people. In Numbers 16.21. In the opening to Romans, Paul says that he was called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Obviously, that's a different word there. Paul's writing in Greek. 
But there's all of this dividing and separating, but all of it starts here when God separated the light from the dark. This is the beginning. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now this is also a thread that you can follow throughout the scripture. This use for day and night and light and dark. These are common themes. And they don't always talk about their respective portions of a literal 24-hour day. Sometimes they're used in a spiritual sense. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 and on comes to mind. You know, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a divide there between sons of the night, sons of the day. So that's something else for you to track down if it interests you. Chase that thread through the Bible, light and dark, day and night. But the primary meaning in verses 3 through 5 is absolutely literal and physical light. Yes, light and darkness are used symbolically later, but at the time of these verses, the actual light and dark were just being created. At that time and before, there was no physical light to draw the symbolism from. This is physical light, and God now speaks it into his universe. Verse 6. So that's the end of day one. Verse six begins day two. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Again, God said, God's word is powerful. Powerful enough to bring his creation into existence from nothing. This phrase is used at the beginning of each of the creation days. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. The firmament in Hebrew is rakia. This is an extended surface or a vast expanse. And it seems to be referring here to the earth's atmosphere. Verse 7, Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. What does that mean when it says the waters below and above the firmament? That's a fair question. Well, if the firmament is the earth's atmosphere, which is what I understand it to be, the waters below could certainly be the oceans. I think that's a perfectly reasonable explanation for that. But we don't know of any waters that now sit above the earth's atmosphere. There is a theory which seems to be well-founded, in my opinion, that the waters above the firmament speak of a vapor canopy that was present above the Earth's atmosphere before the flood. This would actually allow for many puzzle pieces to seem to fit into place. It, it really does seem to explain a lot. Of course, it would help answer the question of how there would be enough water in the flood to cover all of the mountains. Of the earth. We know it wasn't a local flood, it was universal. That's a lot of water. With water vapor above the earth's atmosphere, 
the atmospheric pressure would also be much higher because of the weight of that water vapor pushing down. This higher atmospheric pressure would allow for easier gas exchange in the lungs. Okay, It's funny when athletes put on oxygen masks because it's not actually helping them. Um, if there's not enough oxygen in the air, that's great. But if there is adequate oxygen in the air, your lungs still aren't putting more oxygen into your body just because it's there. It has to do with the pressure differential in your alveoli in your lungs. So if the outside pressure is greater, that would actually allow for more oxygen exchange to occur. Now, there is actually an oxygen therapy that has recently been used clinically, but has also been used for athletes to promote recovery and health. And it's the use of a hyperbaric chamber to speed up this recovery process. And this is really interesting to me because I'm a coach. I work with athletes and try to get them to perform the best they can. So I started looking into this and I found this statement on a company's website that provides this hyperbaric oxygen therapy. They call it HBOT. Um, so consider the source when you, when you hear this. This is from a company that provides this service. But still, interesting. They say there are so many benefits for athletes that HBOT can provide. Faster bone or cartilage regeneration, increased stem cell activation, and reduced muscle fatigue are just a few benefits of HBOT for athletes. It is all accomplished by the high levels of oxygen permeating tissues. Pretty interesting. If this canopy were to increase the pressure in the Earth's atmosphere, the living organisms would be able to oxygenate their tissues more effectively. Of course, that could help explain the long lifespans that we see. And the conditions that were probably present under this pre-flood canopy would also allow organisms to grow larger in addition to living longer. This would provide an adequate explanation as to why we find these giant leaves in the fossil record. And even the dinosaurs, these huge animals, some of them wouldn't be able to be sustained in our present atmosphere. Oh man, I just remembered. There was like this hammer. There's this hammer found somewhere. I'm totally going off script here, so bear with me. <laughs> that was found that was composed of different elements um, in like an alloy that couldn't be combined in today's atmosphere. Y'all have got to look that up. I think that they have a reference to it on the Creation Museum's page, the Creation Museum in Glen Rose. So look that up and let me know what you find. Interesting, though. There's, there's these little breadcrumbs that hint to you that something was different in the past. And you follow all of these down to their logical conclusion. You're like, well... These things can't happen the way it is today. And it's a big wrench in the spoke of uniformitarianism. It is. So this increased pressure helps things live longer, helps them grow larger. Um, just, you know, mammals stop growing at a certain point when they reach maturity. Well, reptiles don't. Reptiles grow their entire lives. That's why when we see a really old crocodile, he's really big. When you see a really old human, usually not that big, right? It's because they keep growing. Just imagine how big a snake would be if they lived to be three to five times older than they do today. And they had increased oxygenation potential. They never stopped growing. Actually, they would be about 40 to 50 feet long and weigh about 2,500 pounds. And I've got a picture for you, so if you don't like snakes, look away now. So this is obviously a reconstruction of one. 
This is called a titanoboa, and it is reconstructed from fossils that were found. Um, so as real as you can get, I guess you could say. But you see the people up there, and it may look a little confusing. He's pictured eating a crocodile. That's why the mouth looks strange up there. That's a crocodile's tail sticking out. Yeah. So huge. It, it is actually the size of a school bus, whereabouts. Um, 2,500 pounds. And if one of these isn't enough for you, they found about 30 of these fossils in one area. This, this titanoboa, not around here, don't worry. There are a lot of fossils around here, you know, in Glen Rose and everything. But these were found in Colombia, in Cerrejón, Cerrejón, Colombia. Um, found over 30 of them in a coal mine there. Now you'll occasionally hear that people say that dinosaurs were just overgrown lizards, and that's sometimes you know something people say. That's actually not accurate. Their very bone structure differs from lizards and dinosaurs. So um, Summer and I attended a lecture on dinosaurs at the Ark Encounter when we went up there in Kentucky. And after a few minutes of sitting in this, what we thought was a lecture, we realized that this was a presentation for little kids. So, but after driving all the way to Kentucky, you know, we, we stuck it out. We stayed and we listened to this presentation. And it wasn't a waste of time. We learned stuff. Um, but <laughs> the biggest takeaway for me was that dinosaurs and lizards are fundamentally different in some of their structures, so especially in their hips. So I've got this other graphic I'll show you. You've got a bearded dragon lizard on the left. You see its legs go out and then down. The, the legs stick out from their torso. In a dinosaur, you've got a T-Rex up top. They're either bipedal or they're quadrupeds. So the dinosaur's legs go straight down. And there is that difference between dinosaurs and lizards. So there's also other requirements for being a dinosaur. It has to be land-dwelling. So, you know, the pterodactyls, the big flying, what we call dinosaurs, are not dinosaurs. You know, sea creatures are not dinosaurs. They have to be land-dwelling. So we thought that was interesting. That's what we took away from that presentation. Um, but it's not really a, a good thing to be saying that lizards or dinosaurs are overgrown lizards. Now, sure, lizards were bigger too. Yeah, they kept growing as well as the dinosaurs, but you know, we'll leave that there. So in order for these cold-blooded reptiles of this size to be sustained, the climate would have had to be maintained wherever they were, and it would have had to have been a warmer climate. And these kinds of fossils have been found all over the world, these reptiles, huge. So that means that there had to be some sort of climate-stabilizing force all across the globe that was allowing these creatures to stay in warmer weather year-round. This is another strength of this canopy theory. The vapor canopy would function like a huge greenhouse, and it would provide for a temperate climate across the globe. Tropical, really. Verse 8, And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. God calls this firmament, this vast expanse, heaven. And that's the same word that's used consistently throughout the Old Testament, heaven. This is good for us to take note of. God defines the firmament as the heavens. And this word translated heaven here is used of three distinct spaces in the Bible. The first heaven, which it's 
colloquially known as is the Earth's atmosphere. It's where the birds fly. You know, we breathe the oxygen from this heaven. The second heaven is outer space, as we would think of it, where the stars, which the Bible calls the host of heaven, are. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. And when we say heaven in a spiritual sense, that's the heaven we're talking about. And that heaven is also referenced by Paul as the third heaven in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 12. The third heaven doesn't fit the context here. So the firmament is not the third heaven. And the second heaven isn't likely to be intended, although it's possible. The first heaven is likely what we have in view here. The firmament is called heaven. That would be the atmosphere of the earth. And I think that this clears up a lot of confusion surrounding the word rakia. It's not actually a solid sheet in the sky, but it is the sky itself. It's this divide between the waters below, the waters above. You'll come across some people that insist that the word rakia is talking about a flat, solid surface, like a dome above the earth. And this is usually talked about by flat earthers. And I think that this is a very narrow view of what's actually being said here. We're obviously seeing this narrative of creation unfold from God's point of view because there was no other point of view yet. Nothing else was created that could give us another point of view other than God's. No one was around to witness it. God obviously exists outside of our four-dimensional universe because he made it, which means that he enjoys greater dimensionality than we do. Now, bear with me. I'm coming back to this dome idea. There are more than just a few references to space being, quote, thin in the Bible. For example, God is said to have stretched out the heavens. You can find this in Job 9, 8, Psalm 104, Isaiah 40, 22, Jeremiah 10, 12. Isaiah 64, 1 says that the heavens can be torn. There's some sort of physical property to them. Psalm 102 says that it can be worn out like a garment. It can be shaken Hebrews 12.26, Haggai 2.6, and Isaiah 13.13. 13. And Isaiah 34.4 and Revelation 6.14 talk about the sky being rolled up like a scroll. Now, let's think about that for a second. Whenever we have trouble understanding higher dimensions, it usually helps to look down a dimension. Rolled up like a scroll. Revelation 6.14 says... Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. This piece of paper is thin in the third dimension. I think we can all agree on that. It's got two dimensions, length and width, and its depth is very thin. Now, if we were two-dimensional inhabitants of this paper, Mr. and Mrs. Flat, if you all remember those guys, you wouldn't realize that your world was thin. You'd perceive everything as a line, but that would be standard operating procedure. But we know it's thin because we are outside of their dimension. We can look onto it and perceive it as being thin in our third dimension. Now, what does this tell us? There must be some dimension, just based on how the Bible talks about space, in which it is thin. God's going to roll it up. That's all that's going to be happening there. And Nachmanides, if you've heard of him, was a, a Hebrew sage of the 12th century. And he concluded only from a study of Genesis 1 
that the universe has 10 dimensions. He said in his own words that four of these dimensions are knowable and the other six are not knowable. And now, particle physicists of the 21st century believe that the universe has 10 dimensions. And only four of them are directly measurable. A change of wording there, but they're saying the same thing. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, I want you to pay attention to this second day. It's missing something that all of the other days include. You see, God doesn't say that it was good. But it seems like a purposeful omission, of of course. There are some thoughts as to why God would not specifically say that this day was good. Now, at the end, he says everything that he created was very good. So that would certainly include the second day. But it's not specifically stated here. One idea that's been proposed is that because God knew the waters that he placed above the firmament would be used to judge mankind in the flood. You know, that's a possibility. Another explanation is that God did not actually create anything on day two. He just rearranged some stuff. I I don't know. Maybe. Truth is, we don't know why, but it does seem like that's purposefully left out of there. Verse 9 starts day 3. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. So just as God said, so it was. It seems that up to this point, the earth was covered all over with water. And that makes sense when we consider what was said in verse 7 about the waters under the firmament being the seas, And seeing that dry land only now appears in verse 9, we can pretty much conclude that the earth was just water at this point. There are some biblical creationists who believe that this early form of dry land existed as a supercontinent, with all of today's continental blocks forming a single large landmass. And interestingly... Secular scientists and Bible-believing scientists kind of agree on this, that this supercontinent existed long ago. Now, we have different views as to how it got into the places it got into today, but it's interesting that we can somewhat agree on this. Now, the Bible-believing scientists would look at this supercontinent as having been divided into what we see today at either the flood, or the Tower of Babel event. And I tend to think it's the flood, but I reserve the right to change my opinion. The waters of the deep broke up in the flood. The water from under the earth's crust came up, broke everything up, and here we are. But we, we won't get too ahead of ourselves there. Verse 10, And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together Of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, God names these two bodies. The dry land he calls earth, and that Hebrew word for earth is the same word that's used in verses 1 and 2 that's also translated earth. So that seems to conclude that the the same elements that were then created in verse 1 are what's being coalesced to bring about this dry land. There's a continuity there. And God saw that it was good. 
This is another important step in God's ultimate purpose for his creation, to house his image bearers. Of course, dry land would be needed for us. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. This is a continuation of the third day. We're still in day three here. And this second part of the third day involves the creation of all kinds of plant life. Let the earth bring forth grass. This is significant because it's the first instance of God creating anything that used DNA to reproduce and pass on its traits. Right here. And this is God's plant taxonomy. Grass, herbs that yield seed, and fruit trees. Those are the distinctions that he makes. All of the plants that we see today would fit into one of these major categories. And I doubt that these would directly correlate with our modern taxonomy that's been arbitrarily structured, but it doesn't seem to matter either way. I mean, that the divisions that God makes are between grasses, herbs, and trees. Grasses would include all spreading, ground-covering vegetation. Herbs would include all bushes and shrubs. And trees would include all large, woody plants, um, even as complex as large fruit trees. We should take note that these plants were made not as seeds, but as full-grown, mature, and functioning plants. They had a purpose to fulfill in relation to man, who God would create only a, a few short days later. God tells his purpose for the plants in Genesis 1.29. See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. That's the purpose of these plants. And in order to fulfill this purpose, God would have needed to create the plants already matured, or he would have rapidly grown the plants on the earth by some special creative action. Of course, it's not the same processes that plants use to grow today, but there's something sped up there. And I tend to go with the idea that they were rapidly grown. When verse 11 says, let the earth bring forth grass, that word translated bring forth carries this idea of sprouting or springing up. And it's only used one other time in the Bible, and it's in Job 2.22. That reads, for the open pastures are springing up, that's our word, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. So it seems that a rapid maturation of plants is meant in verses 11 and 12. An objection is sometimes raised to this idea, and the objection is that if God created things with what they call the appearance of age, he was somehow being deceptive. And of course, that would go against his character if that were the case. God is not deceptive. But there's no deception here. Who's deceived? The unbeliever is deceived, but they're not deceived by God. Who is deceived here? You and I aren't deceived because he tells us exactly how he did it. There's no deception going on here. He spells it out for us right here in Genesis 1. And look, the processes of aging that we observe today are fundamentally different than the processes that God leveraged in creating the universe. They must be different because nothing is currently being created. Therefore, this apparent age that might be calculated by extrapolating our present processes would certainly be different from the true age 
as revealed by the Creator Himself in His Word. It should be no, no problem to us that what things look like is different than what God reveals their actual age is. Did trees have rings when God sprouted them out of the ground? Did he create them with rings? Nobody was there to cut down a tree and see if it had rings. It's a bit of a silly argument to me, I guess. Um, he just tells us how he did it. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Hebrews actually says that we know by faith things that we can see were made by things that we can't see. It's, it's by faith. Verse 12 focuses on the fact that each type of plant yielded seed according to its kind. It says, And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is going to turn out to be extremely important to us, this idea of kinds. In fact, this phrase, after his kind, occurs 10 times in Genesis chapter 1. To my knowledge, we still don't know exactly how these kinds line up with our modern Linnaean classification system. It shouldn't really surprise us that our taxonomic system is a bit out of line with God's system. Because the developers of the classification system approach it with the assumption that God doesn't exist anyways. So it would follow that we are a little bit out of line with their ideas, uh, just considering we have different assumptions about the origin of life itself. And biblically, it seems that a kind is simply a boundary for reproductive purposes. These plants can't reproduce outside of their kind. And likewise, we'll see that animals can't reproduce outside of their kind. For example, you're not going to breed a dog with a cat. You know, they don't like each other anyways, but even if you could get them to try to reproduce, you're not going to get anything out of it. It's because they're fundamentally different kinds. It's just not going to happen. But you can breed a wolf with a poodle, theoretically. They're the same kind. They're both dogs. This creates a problem for evolution, which requires one species to cross over as another species. But this is so intuitive that even children realize that plants and animals reproduce after their kind. I heard a story from the Cotton family. Um, Katie was very small. Uh, she was a little one. And she had some cotton balls, and she wanted more cotton balls. So what does she do? She takes them outside and plants the cotton balls in the ground, hoping that they will reproduce after their kind and give her more cotton balls. So Summer and Emma were a little bit older. They kind of had the wherewithal to mess with Katie. So they went out there after she had gone to bed or something, and put little sticks in the ground and put cotton balls on top of the sticks to make it look like they were sprouting up. So she ran out in the morning. She was so excited that she grew some cotton. Uh, but even she expected that that cotton would reproduce after its own kind. She didn't plant cotton and expect to get corn. You know, there is this intuitive type of response to this idea. Verse 13, so the evening and the morning were the third day. So that wraps, wraps up our third day. In the third day, God made the dry land. He gathered the seas and sprouted all of the different types of vegetation on the earth. And here's a problem for those that take these days as geological ages. How would these plants survive for millions of years without the sun yet being created? Or the bees created to pollinate these different types of plants? Surviving a couple days would be no problem. 
but millions of years? I don't think so. That's It's an issue. Day 4, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So right off the bat, God tells us his purpose for these luminary bodies. They are to be for signs and seasons and for days and years and to give light on the earth. These purposes relate to humans. All of this is setting the stage for humans. Now, remember that light itself, the Hebrew word or, was already created on day one. Now we have the creation of luminaries or light bearers, maor, a different word. They are literally holding the light or bearing the light. Verse 16 and 17, Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. So the greater light, obviously, is the sun, and the lesser light would be the moon. And those two bodies are used to house the light and furnish that light to the earth. And he made the stars also. Just throw that in there. I love that. It's like, oh, he made trillions of giant flaming balls and spread them all across the universe. That's no big deal. He made the stars also. It's almost in passing that this is mentioned. And man, that just speaks to what a mighty God we serve. How big is he? We can't comprehend. How powerful is he? We can't comprehend. Verse 18, and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. God's purpose is spread throughout the creation week. And his purposes relate to the pinnacle of his creation. That's you and me. God is in the process here of crafting the perfect habitation for Adam. Think about it. Now, I know from our little time in Revelation that y'all love mangoes. So I'll use mangoes for this example. Man, that cracked us up. I'm all up in arms about mangoes. God wasn't hanging around in eternity and thinking, man, I should, I should make a mango. I can't wait to sink my teeth into a nice, juicy mango. No, of course he wasn't thinking that. What he might have been thinking was, man, I can't wait to see the look on Adam's face when he bites into this. It's, it's for man. Creation was for Adam's enjoyment, and Adam was for God's glory. Adam was given dominion over the creation, and we'll see that as we move along. Now, concerning these luminary bodies and the light, there is a question that comes up pretty often. We've got a couple minutes left. This question I've been asked a couple of times just since starting Genesis it's the light travel time problem. And just to give you a brief background, basically, if the universe is only six to 10,000 years old, how did light from stars and galaxies that are billions of light years away have enough time to travel to the Earth? Now, obviously, we wouldn't be able to observe those far-off stars if their light had not reached the Earth already. This is a fascinating question and one that can be answered as simply or as complicated as you would like. 
So we'll start with simple. There are plenty of online resources that you can access if you'd like to dive deeper into this question. Answers in Genesis, which is Ken Ham's ministry, they have a good article that I found about this issue. goes through a lot of the different thoughts about it. Here's the simple answer. God created the stars and galaxies to be discovered by us. He created them with a purpose, and that purpose was to give light to the earth and to be for signs and seasons, days and years. Those purposes relate to man. They would have to be observable by us if they were to fulfill their purpose. And it's the same idea with the plants that we discussed. Scattering seeds a few days before Adam came around wouldn't do him much good as food. So in order to prepare those plants for their purpose as it relates to Adam, God sprouted them out of the ground. He grew them to maturation. In order to function as light for the earth and for signs for seasons, for days and years, the light from those stars would have to have reached earth. That is a purpose in relation to man. God brought the light of stars to the earth for man in an accelerated creative process. And it's not at the same speed that light travels today. Just like the plants didn't sprout out inch by inch. I mean, I think he really brought them up. This is a creative process, not what we see today. And this explanation seems perfectly acceptable to me. Again, this is not God being deceptive. He tells us very plainly how he did it. And if you want to venture down the rabbit hole of scientific explanations for this phenomena, just bear in mind that we know closer to nothing than we do to everything by a wide margin. Time is a physical property. Thanks to Einstein, we know this. We know that time is relative to one's position in space. How does time work in the farthest reaches of the universe? Do you know? I have no idea. Time is relative to where you are in space. We really don't know much. We also don't know the one-way speed of light, only the two-way speed of light. If you were to precisely measure the time it takes for an athlete to run a 40-yard dash, how would you do that? You'd have one electronic sensor at the starting line, one at the finish line. When the athlete breaks the barrier of that start line, that electronic sensor sends a signal down to the finish line. When they cross the finish line, that time is stopped. And you have the time it took for that athlete, or the athlete's speed, if you will. What if the athlete could outrun that signal from the start line to the finish line? What if he was that fast? Well, we'd have other problems, wouldn't we? We wouldn't be able to use that method for timing him. Light is the fastest thing in the universe. There's nothing that can beat light. It would outrun any kind of signal that you could send ahead of it. So how do you measure its speed? Now, this is a problem that scientists have wrestled with. You have to measure a round trip, a two-way speed as opposed to a one-way speed. You have to send the light out from a source, reflect it off of something in the distance, and measure the time it takes to go to that reflective object and back to its source. That's the two-way speed of light. And that's the only measurement of the speed of light that we can get. There's been experiments designed, but none of them have worked to try to get the one-way speed. Now, we're talking theoretically here, okay? So indulge me for just a moment. 
Since we can't measure the one-way speed of light, we assume that the two-way speed is the same as the one-way speed. That's an assumption that we have. And as long as you satisfy the equation for the speed of light, you're on solid theoretical ground. The time it takes for it to get to the reflective object and the time it takes to get back, you divide it over how far it's traveled, and that's your speed of light. So consider this equation. And in theory, I'm not saying this is the way it is, but in theory, the one-way speed could be instantaneous. And the, the time it takes for it to travel back, the second leg of the journey, could take all of the time to satisfy that equation. And it would be theoretically correct. As long as the trip to the reflective surface plus the return trip equals c, which is the speed of light, you've satisfied that equation. Now, again, I'm just calling into question what we actually know about this stuff. You know, we have very limited knowledge. I'm much more comfortable taking God at his word than trying to sort through these things based on my own reasoning. And again, a lot of these explanations scientifically are based on uniformitarianism that the speed of light has always been what it is today that natural processes we observe today have been constant forever that's an assumption we have to be aware of that when we approach anything coming from the established scientific community because it's there We know by the very fact of there being a creation that uniformitarianism is not an accurate assumption. And actually, the light travel time is problematic to the Big Bang Theory as well. A lot of people don't know this, and it's ironic that they use this argument against a view of creation because it actually has trouble with their theory as well. And this has to do with the cosmic microwave background radiation and the uniform temperatures across the universe. Even with their timeline, their billions of years, light would not have had enough time to travel from one side of the universe to the other. As far as we know, this would have been necessary for the even heat distribution that we see today. In their model they say that things would have been different temperatures at the Big Bang. Now, the temperature across the universe is consistent. Light would have had to travel from one point to another in order to even out that heat across the whole universe. So, yeah, even with their billions of years, there wouldn't have been enough time for all of that to happen. It's a problem for them as well. So don't let them throw it in your face. Uh, Try to use it to discredit creation when their own model has trouble with it as well. Anyways, I want to reiterate as we close the point that there is purpose in God's creation. And I hope that you've been able to see that as we're moving through, even down to the way he chose to structure the creation week. With six days of work, one day of rest, that has purpose, and we'll get there. There is purpose in everything he does. And this is encouraging to me as I look around at the craziness that seems to have overrun our society. There is purpose to it. And God is the same today as he was at the very beginning. He is purposeful. You know, Einstein said, God does not play dice. And as strange an idea as that is, it it rings true. There's purpose to what he does. As we look at this crazy world, evil world, truly, we know and we can rest in the fact that there's a purpose to it all. And we just saw where all this is going. We just finished Revelation. You know, there should be no need for us 
to fret. He's got a purpose, and he still sits on his throne today, just as he did on the very first day of his creation. Everlasting, all-powerful, all-knowing, loving. He loves us enough to come in the flesh, to die for us, and to take on our sin to himself. That's the end of all of this. It's redemption. That's what all of this is leading up to. He loves us. Let's close our study this morning with prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.